Welcome to the Australian Property Investment Podcast with your host, Aaron Christie-David. Each episode, we ask an expert to share their key insights for aspiring investors to make confident property choices. G'day, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Australian Property Investment Podcast. My name is Aaron Christie-David. I'm the mortgage broker and founder of Atelier Wealth. This podcast was designed to help property investors answer a lot of their frequently asked questions, but also help you make better quality property decisions. When we kind of hit up a lot of our guests, we we often turn to what I call best in breed, so industry leaders, um, people that have solid reputations, solid businesses, and they come from a place of love, which is serving and giving back to their clients as well. Our guest today, uh, I'd almost call him uh, buyer's agent's royalty. I know he'll probably blush when I say that because he's, uh, he's quite modest, um, but our guest today, Simon Presley, is the head of property market research at Propertyology. He probably needs no introduction because his reputation precedes him, but for those that don't know, Propertyology produced some incredible content. They've been around for a very long time, and Simon actually is a Hall of Famer as well. So, uh, Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron, for those uh, kind words and for inviting me on your great podcast. <laughs> no, nah, thank you very much, man. I just want to kind of start start with you as a person. I know we had, uh, had a chat about you and your family and and where you are, but just want to kind of give us the, the one-minute rundown into who is Simon Priestley as well. Who is Simon Priestley? I'm your everyday <laughs> Aussie that um, is incredibly driven to um, help help people and provide for my family and investing is something that um, even before I entered the workforce in my late teens was – something that was important to me. I think I, I learnt inadvertently from my parents and aunties and uncles seeing uh, the consequences of them not prioritising investing, how important uh, that is. So chose a banking career, loved, loved numbers, bought my first house at the age of 21 yeah, um, and ever since been a very active property investor. Wonderful. So, I mean, let's let's go there because you've, you've talked about property at a very early age and you talked about family, right? I often say that family will shape a lot of your money habits, you know, how you see debt, how you use money, how you spend money, for example, families that may have had um, bad experiences with you know, investing in property, then pass that on maybe to their children as well. So can we just go there and say, look, what was your, what was your experience as a family and property that kind of led you down this path as well, good, bad or, or ugly? Yeah, oh, great comment. I, I, I think we do learn a lot as children, but we don't probably recognise until we're later in life what, yeah. we, what we did learn. And sometimes we learn things by actually being sat down and things explained to us um, in a traditional classroom format. But, you know, our parents can do that with us at home. But other, mm. other, other times we learn, I guess, just by observing things. And so uh, my experience as a, as a child in property, mum and dad never owned property. Uh, so I was raised as mm. a... A military child. My father was in, you know, joined the army. I think he was about nineteen years of age. So, wow. you know, my entire school years, it felt like every two two years, I was living in a different part of Australia. And and my parents' accommodation was provided by the Australian government, the Defence Force. Yeah. So, you know, buying a home was never important, Mum and Dad, because they were they were not in the one place very often. Yeah. Um. But what that did for me was uh, it gave me, looking back on my childhood years, it, it, it exposed me to a, an enormous part of Australia, capital cities and regional locations. Now, as a child, you don't take that stuff in, but yeah. as an adult, especially in my chosen profession as a national property market analyst, it keeps me very much open-minded to every part of Australia. Yeah, right. And what then made you make the jump to and give you that confidence to go from coming up from raising, being raised in a household that didn't own property to then going and buying investment properties? That's a significant jump, I guess, in self-confidence and self-belief, right? So how did you then 
make that conf- that confidence step to then buying property for yourself, Simon? Yeah, I never I never verbalised it to anybody, but I had an incredibly strong determination. Probably my recollection was maybe at about the age of about 15 or 16, believe it or not, Yeah, right. that I was going to own a family home. And where that incredibly strong drive come from was realising that mum and dad, not only did had they not achieved that themselves, I realised that they were probably never going to achieve that. Wow. Um, and when I realised how sad that was, not that it was their fault, and mum yeah. and dad are incredibly hardworking people with great great values that they that they passed on to me, but they were never taught financial literacy. Yeah. And because they never prioritised not only home ownership um, but investing um, mm. for, for their later years, their retirement years, I became aware of that um, in, in uh, my adolescent years and thought, yeah, that's that's not right. That's not their fault. Yeah. But make sure that I don't repeat the same thing. Um, and, of you know, one, making sure that I didn't do that, but I helped others you know, to you to make some better financial decisions during yeah. their time in the workforce. Spot on. I think one thing you've just nailed there is a lot of, uh, yeah, call maybe baby boomers, even people today, they work incredibly hard for their money, but their money probably isn't working as hard as it could for them. And so that's why investing in property, we say to a lot of people, can be a very great way to secure your retirement or long-term wealth, family wealth, whatever you decide that it's going to take you down. It should be part of that, I guess, that wealth planning part. But a lot of people just don't know how to get it right or they've had bad bad experiences or bad stories, isn't it? That's right, Aaron. And unfortunately, society has never taught financial literacy, mm. even to this day. And I'm, I'm, I'm a father. I've got a teenage son. We don't teach even basic things like budgeting, let alone investing, yeah. let alone explaining how miserable life would be on an age pension. Yeah. Um, I think if people realise that stuff, suddenly they would prioritise a better spending habits yeah. um, and would put it would, would make, I guess, investing a bit like a household bill. It would, it would be mm. something that they would just allocate every pay packet that they've got. You know, they'd be setting that aside to the future. We can all do it, yeah. but we just, but very few of us do do it because I guess we don't have enough understanding of it. Yeah, correct, mate. Love your ethos. Love your ethos. Another one of, I guess, your big ethos is, is and it was, a, it was a comment that I heard you say, which really stuck out to me that you know capital cities equal capital equals capital growth, and that's where you know, a lot of investors typically go to. But you have a very different philosophy when it comes to you know, finding and, and looking at locations for investment properties. Can you just take us through? Uh, I guess we'll go down that rabbit hole and say, look, take us through. I guess your your philosophy and your beliefs around where investing in property, and maybe it's not as important as what people think it is. Yeah, look, property will always be a very emotive uh, topic. Um, let's face it, we all live in a property, whether we own it or rent it, we live in a property. Uh, and it creates, for a lot of people, it creates a false sense of confidence, including plenty of people who might already be active property investors themselves. Yeah. It's actually really, really complicated property markets. I've, I've uh, argued since the coronavirus that um, that other than developing a vaccine for the coronavirus, property markets are possibly the most complex thing on this planet. <laughs> and it's full of misconceptions. And one of the biggest misconceptions is that capital cities are better, um, that, that, that the word capital within capital city has something to do with capital growth, mm. not supported at all by evidence. Um, others think that capital city means safer because there's more people living in it. Again, not supported at all by, by evidence. Yeah. Don't know where I get this from, Aaron, but I'm a very evidence-based decision maker. Yeah. Um, you know, before I make any big decision in, in my life, I need to see the evidence. And I've learned that a lot of um, 
a lot of things that even though there could be millions of people in society believe about property often are not at all supported by evidence. I'll give you a, a very simple fact I love quoting. Uh, over the last 20 years, the average annual capital growth rate of a house in Wangaratta, now most people don't even know where Wangaratta <laughs> is on the map, it has had a higher average annual capital growth rate than the apartment in Sydney, our biggest city. Yeah, right. That is a fact. That is not one year, that's over the last 20 years. Um, so capital city is just a term. Regions just a term. If we if we looked at a different asset class, if we thought about the stock market, it's like comparing financial stocks to retail stocks or tech stocks. They're mm. just terms. It doesn't define which stock on, on the stock exchange is better or has the better potential. And exactly the same can be said about property markets. Um, I've, I've got some. If we've got time, I've got Absolutely. some um, facts for you. The last five years, have we got a couple of moments to go Absolutely. through that? Absolutely, let's go there. The best performed property markets in all of Australia. Over the last five calendar years, I won't go through all of them, but um, we'll start down the bottom. Adelaide, Brisbane and Sydney, the median house price grew by roughly 15% over the last five years combined. On the next tier above that, uh, growing by between 20 and 35%, we've got places like Coffs Harbour, Lithgow, Sunshine Coast, Wangaratta I mentioned earlier, mm. Kempsey, Swan Hill, Maitland. Uh, the next rung above that, 35%. The 50% growth over the last five years. Um, the best performed capital city was Hobart. But you've also got places like Colac, Shoalhaven, Geelong, hmm. Launceston in beautiful Tasmania, Orange. So that, that's three times the rate of growth of Sydney, Brisbane, and Adelaide. And the best performed property markets in excess of 50% over the last five years, we've all heard of Byron Bay, hmm. but also Macedon Ranges, Warrigal, Wonthaggy, Mornington Peninsula, and Torquay. Most wow. people wouldn't know where those locations are. I'd put my hand up and say, well, on a half, some of, you know, some of those suburbs where they are, but your, your job as a buyer's agent is to go, this is what the data is saying, and, and maybe changing people's perceptions about capital cities being a safe bet versus regionals. And like, where does that, I guess, where does that riskiness that gets attached to regional towns come from? I know that. Maybe mining towns may have had that where people may have gone into mining towns, considered that regional and gone, well, it's where hearts get broken perhaps. But what are yeah. some of the other reasons that maybe hold people back from looking at regional markets versus the safer bet, what we'd consider the safer options being in a capital city, for example? Possibly the most common question I ever get asked, Aaron. <laughs> um, so it's a fantastic question. Look, there is a big difference. I, I, I describe it as the, as the difference between a real risk and a perceived risk. A lot of the things that we associate with risk in property are perceived risk, which uh, aren't supported by evidence. And part of my role, I guess, is to understand why people think a certain thing and, and then respond to that with, with evidence. And, yeah. and so perceptions can be changed with evidence, with knowledge. But I think the, um, you know, the stereotypical stories of the one industry mining town that we've all heard, yeah. um, me the media love the blood on the street story. <laughs> And very rarely do they write a story about a regional location unless it is a blood-on-the-street mining town story. Yeah, so if you've spent most or all of your life living in a capital city and you've got interest in property markets, that's mostly what you're going to read. So your perception over the journey through your life has been that regions are risky. 
but they're actually talking about a very small percentage of Australia's locations. So we've got obviously our eight capital cities, but in total we've got about 200 individual regional towns and cities. There's some really big regions amongst those, places like Newcastle, Wollongong, Geelong, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, Townsville, really, really big regional cities. There's a number of what I call medium-sized but mini-capital cities. So what I mean by a mini-capital city, that's a propertyology term. Yeah. It's got all the essential infrastructure and a diverse economy that a Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane would have. It's just got it on a smaller scale. So there are places like Orange and Bendigo and Ballarat and, and Mackay and Cairns, um, Bunbury, Bustleton. They're all over Australia. Um, but what constitutes risk or has the biggest risk in a property market is when the local economy of the individual town or city yeah. lacks diversity. Okay. Now, we've got some capital cities that, in our opinion, lack sufficient diversity. Perth, for example, our fourth biggest city, a capital city, it would not have mattered what property you or I could have bought in Perth 10 years ago. Yeah, correct. It's worth less today. Spot on. All right? Um, Darwin, the same. Canberra, our nation's capital, 33% of jobs in Canberra are employed by the government. It lacks diversity. But those locations I mentioned earlier, and there's about 40 or 50 of them in total throughout regional Australia, have incredible economic diversity. They've got, in most cases, more affordable housing than our capital city. So that's another correct measurement of risk. Yeah. And what they don't have in a lot of cases is a construction sector uh, or a big segment of their workforce employed by the construction sector. Construction sector is what controls supply. Okay. So a few years back, Sydney and Melbourne had a significant property market downturn that was caused by an overstimulated construction sector. So there's a few components there that as a property investor, we need to understand the difference between real risk and perceived risk. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, when you reference people that live in, say, capital cities that are conditioned to go, this is where you need to be, it's almost because we're told that you need to invest in blue chip locations mm. and quite often regional would never register to a lot of investors myself going, these, you would consider them blue chip, but being in a city, we wouldn't consider Wangaratta blue chip. Yeah. And I think there's a big difference between blue chip in regards to where the multimillionaire might want to buy their family home and live in mm. and blue chip property investment stock. Uh, I would argue that the locations that broader society describes as a, as a blue chip property market would be the last places that a property investor would want to put their money in. Yeah, right. I, it makes we've all. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, name a phrase here we've all heard of: never place all your eggs in the one basket. <laughs> so in that case, basic we, common yeah. sense, isn't it? Right, oh, a share investor is not going to put two hundred thousand dollars of their hard-earned money on Commonwealth Bank because something could happen to Commonwealth Bank and all of their all of the value of their of their investments goes down the gurgler mm. um, for a sustained period of time. A business is not going to have a high percentage of their annual revenue coming from that one customer. We've yeah. all heard of that statement, don't put your eggs in one basket. But property investors, if they can afford the $1.5 million house in a so-called blue chip suburb in Sydney or Melbourne, that's what they do. Mm. So let's we go there. Do I mean, it. You, you, you go 1.25, you could buy a property in, say, Surrey Hills. Close to the city, ticks a lot of boxes, right? Very, very investor friendly, for example. What would be the argument then to go, hang on, don't buy the 1.2, maybe buy two at 500K, for example. Like, How do you then counter that argument when people go, should I buy – one at a million or two at 500, for example. Yeah. Um, so if we look at a Surrey Hills or something like that, and you know, over the last 20 years, if we did that today, 
I'd be very confident that in 20 years' time we would not be disappointed with that decision. Mm. But in saying that, I'd also be very, very confident that we could have used the same amount of money and broke it up into smaller parcels the same way that a share investor does it and bought two or three properties in, and not just different, not just multiple properties, but in multiple locations right. in the same way the share investor has, a, has some stocks in the financial sector the tech sector, the mining sector, or whatever. Propertyology would break the investment capital up in the same way. So we're taking advantage of more more opportunities. We're minimising our risk because yeah. we have not got all of our eggs in that one basket. The historical evidence shows us that the Surrey Hills of the, of the world, whilst they've performed well, they're very much middle of the road. Plenty of other parts of Australia. I mentioned at the start of this interview, yeah. Wangaratta, the location that no one's heard of, how it's done, yeah. uh, and that's not an isolated location. So we would be looking for the equivalent of those two or three Wangaratas, a, a standard house that today we might pay $500,000 for, and roughly buying three of those in completely different parts of Australia, each location having a different economic profile, right. so different industry sectors that are most important to local job creation, um, and it's also much safer for the cash flow. The cash flow on that one expensive property worth $1.5 million uh, will be a heck of a lot worse than three properties that are collectively worth $1.5 yeah, okay. million. That's, I mean, that's a question that comes up a, a hell of a lot of time when we're talking to clients is, like, should I go all in and buy the one bigger property, bank it all in one, versus go split up over two, and now I've got potentially two properties to manage where it's like, well, hang on, the risk versus reward could be better on the on the two properties is what is what you're alluding to as well. Yeah. Yeah, great. I mean, you mentioned the propertyology way, and uh, one of the things that really caught me was you were the first buyer's agent to pick Hobart, and um, I know that from our own experience, um, Bernadette, my wife, and I, we got presented with Hobart quite a few years ago, and we looked at each other going, Hobart has done nothing for like 10 years and this seems like a risky bet. And you were the one of the, you were the first buyer's agent to go, Hobart is the place for investors. So I really want to kind of go on. What was the, what was the attraction to Hobart? What was it about this particular, because it has been one of the, I guess the, the, the success stories of, you know, property investing that it's, you know, gone to do incredible numbers. And I can put my hand up and say, we definitely missed that boat. But how did you then go? There's something about this location. Yeah. Um, look, it's a long time ago now, Aaron. We, yeah. It was 2014 that Propertyology uh, started investing there, and we stopped investing there in early 2016, so a long right. time ago. But um, it's a great success story, not just for our clients. We've deliberately used uh, – because I guess all of Australia knows now how well Hobart has right. performed. Well, hindsight's a beautiful um, thing, isn't it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> We've tried to use it as a, because people are aware that over the seven years since we we invested there, it's literally been the best performed property market in Australia. Yeah. Knowing that people are now aware of that, we've tried tried to use what actually caused Hobart's growth to educate people and try to break down some of those barriers and and misconceptions. How did we pick it? It starts by first uh, looking at those two hundred locations we were talking about earlier. All of them investors don't do that. Yeah. 99.9% of investors never um, think of anywhere other than their hometown, so they give themselves no chance of doing any well. Or if they try to be a little bit creative, let's say they live in one of our capital cities, um, they might consider that, you know investing in in one of two or three other capital cities. That's as mm. far as they consider. So step number one for us picking Hobart, not just in 2014, but every single day, considering 
objectively the fundamentals of every location in Australia, removing all bias. Uh, I've trained myself to totally ignore what economists and and uh, many so-called um, property market experts say about mm. property markets because yeah. if I followed what they said, we never would have discovered Hobart and many regional um, location successes. Yeah. We've placed a lot of evidence, uh, sorry, a lot of a lot of credence on respecting growth cycles, uh, knowing how to read cycles, um, knowing how to read the three segments of housing supply. That's where pressure comes from, and it's also one of the, the key risk components. So when we identified Hobart in 2014, whilst the market had been flat for several years, it, it actually had tight housing supply yeah, right. in the three components, new construction, resale supply, and rental supply. Um, and where the demand comes from, contrary to what most people think, population growth has very, very little to do with property price growth. Cannot stress that enough. The second biggest myth in property markets is that people get fixated on population Absolutely. growth. Absolutely, yeah. But digress for a second, here and now today, Australia's national population growth has been its lowest rate for more than 100 years, <laughs> way back in World War One. Yeah. but yet we've got the second biggest property boom at the moment in our nation's history. Yeah, right. So, so Hobart, um, the demand side of things, whether that's Hobart or any other market that we've picked, is understanding a big bunch of decisions that have been made in recent years that are going to have an influence on a local economy. And when we've got a big enough critical mass of decisions that we're aware of that give us confidence of job creation, that's the leading indicator for future property price growth. Because what it does, job creation um, puts upward pressure on wages and most importantly, it creates confidence mm. in, a, in a local economy. And confidence is, what, is what's needed for someone to go to an open home or an auction without confidence, they don't get. They don't want to go into debt. They're certainly not going to buy a property. That's spot on. I can see just over your shoulder there the the trademark orange with the propertyology research, um, which you guys have been uh, become famous for. And uh, you guys produce some incredible uh, array of data content. For example, comes out on a very regular basis. What has been? I guess I mean people love it and they resonate with it. For example. But the driving force behind propriology success is that you are so in the data and that you're so in the research, for example. So talk us through your methodology when it comes to producing all of that content and then I guess how you get that out there as well, please, Simon. Yeah, uh, look, we've, um, I know I personally write these, uh, you know, roughly once a fortnight um, we produce a blog um, which yep. we distribute um, via a free subscription basis just through electronic um, newsletters and our objective for that, there's no sales material in that. It's not, you know, how good are we or mm. we don't sell property. We've got no vested interest in anything. We're trying, we, we use, we're prepared to give away big pieces of our of our research and our insights to try to educate the broader Australian public. So whether it's, uh, you know, dispelling the population growth myth that we were talking about earlier or talking generically about capital cities versus regions or sometimes we'll produce a, a case study, we'll pick an individual location and we'll pull it apart and explain it through the eyes of a property investor as opposed to through the eyes of a resident who might live there, yeah. removing the bricks and mortar and treating property as a financial instrument. So that's our objective with with producing those blogs roughly once a fortnight is to educate. And in doing that, what we're doing is is demonstrating our skill. And I guess someone who's been reading our our content for a period of time, it gives them an opportunity to work out for themselves 
how they evaluate our, our, our level of skill mm-hmm. and knowledge. And if they're looking to invest at some time in the future, um, I guess they've had um, yeah, a bit of a taste of uh, of what we're about. So that's what we're trying to do with that. I think you just touched on it before. That you, just, you, you pretty much give it away. So there's not really that that trade secret where you have to sign up and then the engagement fee like, to get hold of your data. It's like, hey, we're such an open book with all our data and our research. We just want to give it away because – you also want to pay it forward to to people that want that information to go, here it is. There's no secret source to it. But we actually want to try and, I guess, raise the bar for investors and go make good quality, educated decisions. And if they are looking to to engage with you guys, they know what you're about and they know what you stand for as well, isn't it? Yeah. We, we are very, very generous with what we give away. All of the trade secrets will never be given out. They were never we're never <laughs> going to say, um, you know, here's an exobart, guys, you know, j- jump in here. Yeah. Um, you know, those who pay propertyology engage propertyology and pay us a, a fee for service yep. they definitely uh definitely get that but the broader public the free well, it's like chefs mate they don't give away all um, their secrets. really good recipes, quality information yeah but, but no now we're never going to be giving away the absolute <laughs> trade secrets of you know where are we investing now yeah now, right here now today we're investing in 10 completely different towns and cities across four different states but i'm never going to share that with uh with the broader public on a personal note, Simon, I guess you, you live and breathe this yourself. Um, what has been some of, I guess, the upsides and what's been some of the, I guess, the lessons you've learned when you've gone through your own your own journey when you've been buying and, and building your property portfolio? Yeah, no one's perfect. And as I mentioned earlier, Aaron, I'd argue there's nothing more complicated on this planet than understanding property markets and especially we've got so many of them. And, you know, some of the best learnings I've got has is, is not been by intentionally you know, going through my daily motions of researching property markets every day, it's actually been through personal experiences. So so we've got, you know, I guess formal studies we've done. We've got our daily research activities that we do, but we've also got our personal experiences. Yeah. Um, it, we're now up to 19 individual towns and cities across five different states that we've invested in at different times. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, we've spoken about Hobart that's still doing exceptionally well now, but there's also a long time ago now, but we also had some a couple of locations that did not perform well a couple of years after we stopped buying there. Yeah. And I probably learned more from those experiences than any other studies. There's nothing more powerful than going through personal pain. Mm. I, I personally invest in the same locations that our clients invest in. When you have uh, financial pain, it's a bit like um, if you ever banged your thumb with a hammer. <laughs> it bloody hurts, doesn't it? But yeah. if you don't learn what caused that pain, you only got yourself to blame. So if you've invested in property um, and, and then years later it's not performing the way you want, my advice to anybody who's experienced that is to reflect on your original decision. And that's what we did. So it, when Sydney and Melbourne had its um, oversupply downturn a few years back, yeah. we saw that boom, uh, we saw that downturn coming um, and publicised their forecast for that even during Sydney Melbourne's boom. But how do we know that was coming? Because years before that, we had been through a completely different market that went through a downturn caused by oversupply. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's no way of us knowing that at the time of investing there that that was on the horizon. But when we actually went through it, we took the time to understand what caused this performance that we don't like and is there a way that going forward we could anticipate that that occurring again. Yeah, um, nice. Another location uh, had a downturn caused by a weak local economy. At the time of investing there, the local economy was fine, mm. but years later it became weak. So it's those personal experiences and that personal pain, uh, you know, that there's no greater teacher if you reflect yeah. to learn from that. And, that, and that's an effective way for distilling some of those myths. Absolutely, mate. Thank you so much. Look, 
you've been super generous with your time, been super generous with your, with your insights as well. Um, as we wrap up, I just want to yeah, just ask you your, when you're dealing with investors that, and I ask this of everyone that we bring on the show, that maybe get stuck or they're, they're stuck in that analysis paralysis zone or they don't know what step to take next. What's your, what's your parting bit of advice for them that would help maybe give that confidence or that reassurance to say, this is, this could be a rewarding journey for you? Uh, maybe when I get around to writing a book on that great question. <laughs> um, so a, f- a few general tips. Your hometown is where you prefer to live, and that's a very personal and subjective, albeit very important decision. But if you're about to invest, I would encourage everybody, completely disregard your hometown, especially if you own your principal place of residence there. If you're about to invest in your hometown, you're putting all your eggs in the one basket. So you, mm-hmm. owe, you don't owe it to me or anybody else. You owe it to yourself to consider 100% of your investment options. That's eight capital cities and 200 regional locations. Mm. If you don't consider all of those, you're not giving yourself a very good chance of realising your full potential. Um, second general tip I'd give is to be aware of the confirmation bias. Spot on. We've all got one. For those who aren't familiar with that term, what what that is is, is having an emotional attachment to something that you want to see happening. The common example is the family home. We want to invest. We'd love our family home to be the next boom town. So we kid ourselves with thinking we're researching, but all we're doing is reading what's probably a whole bunch of crap on the internet and looking for information that's that's talking positively about our own market. Yeah. So we can justify why we really, you know, why we're making a decision that we're really going to make anyway, because that's what the heart wants us to do. Mm. So be mindful of that. Pay a lot less attention to the aesthetics of a property than the actual town or city itself. The most important decision to get right is the town or city that you choose to invest in. That will do about 80% of of your investment lifting as opposed to the specific property asset that you buy. Three general tips. No, I love it. And uh, I I can hear people, I can feel clients squirm when I say don't look in your hometown because it's like it's it's the safety net. It's like, hang on, but it has been performing. And it's hard to argue because, yeah, it has been performing but then also it could actually be higher performing if you looked maybe outside your hometown as well, isn't it? Uh, and especially now because Correct. today we are the first time since 2003 in this country, Aaron, mm. that literally every location in Australia, all of those 200 locations in Australia, property prices are growing. Correct. That has not happened since 2003. Mm. So no matter where you live in Australia, if you're contemplating investing today, you've got this extra bit of false sense of security right before your very eyes that's saying, my own, my hometown is performing well. <laughs> of course, this is a great decision to buy here. You need to understand the fundamentals because there could be something around the corner in your hometown that you're not aware of unless your profession is studying property markets nationally all day, every day. You probably won't be aware of what might be around the corner in the next couple of years. Yeah, spot on. Mate, you went on the record kind of when Corona hit that, you know, property prices would would grow in value. And so that I mean that's that's come to fruition. Um your I guess your your feel on when the market's headed at the moment. What are your thoughts? Uh yes, we were on the record saying that and copped an awful lot of criticism. Yeah, absolutely. For, uh, I must say as well, Aaron, because I think I was probably the only only one out of twenty six. <laughs> well every million. other bank economist was saying otherwise and you're saying yeah. the exact opposite. Yeah. yeah. Um, where's it heading? It really depends which part of Australia we're talking about. Mm. I think uh, there'll be some locations that maybe as early as the end of this calendar year will see their market 
uh, more normalised. I'm yeah. not a betting man, but if I was to have a bit of a guess as to which markets they might be, I, I think uh, Melbourne will be the first that will slow down. And we actually have yeah. some concerns for for Melbourne's market. Not a crash, but um, every possibility of uh, of some price declines in Melbourne over the next couple of years. Right. I think Sydney um, might normalise uh, at some stage over the next next 12 months. Yeah. But I think that we're going to see uh, many other parts of Australia that could um, continue to see the rates of growth that we've seen over the last 12 months for several years. There are parts of Australia right now that are growing at at least 20% per annum pace. Phenomenal stuff. Now, what, what will um, why each market is performing differently, different volumes of housing supply, local economic conditions yeah. are different. Um, there's confidence everywhere at the moment because there's so much stimulus in Australian property markets, but the stimulus stuff is what I call a sugar fix. Sugar is not a reliable or a sustainable energy source. So we need to be mindful of that and focus on the uh, uh, on the sustainable energy stuff, which is the, the local economic factors. Um, but there could be some markets in Australia that, believe it or not, Aaron might grow by as much as 100% in five or six years. They're incredible numbers when you think about it, isn't it? And it goes to your point that, now we're going to start to see that you know, there are markets within markets, whereas the last twelve months in a sh- no, the last six twelve months in Australian property market has been a rising tide has lifted all ships across all yep. markets. Where we're going to start to start to change and fluctuate within you know within specific markets as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah great. We've we, we've got record low interest rates, and I think that will remain uh, very low for many years. But again, not a betting man, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see the RBA uh, make its first interest rate increase during the 2021-22 financial year. Yeah. At some stage over the next 12 months, I wouldn't be surprised if we see our first rate increase. Now, if that happens, that's not a bad thing. If the RBA do that, that will be because they have zero concern of the economic recovery from the pandemic. Yeah. That'll be well and truly behind us. And because for the first time since before the GFC, we're seeing wage growth. I reckon mm. Australia is, is in for some considerable wage growth. Um, so if those two things happen... Um, the RBA historically, that's when they increase interest rates. Yeah, yeah. The wage growth I call COVID clarity for a lot of businesses. They've come out of this going, "Hey, look, we're actually coming out of this better, bigger, stronger." For example, I mean, you mentioned that your team's working from home and things are things are great. A lot of businesses, you know, property specific, for example, they're coming out of this going, "Hey, mate, we're actually doing far better than what we thought we would have." And that clarity is there in their businesses, and the confidence is there to go with it as well. Yes, um, you know, and in, in, in over 200 years of Australian history, there's been all sorts of moments of significant adversity, world wars and global financial crisis and yeah. health pandemics. Out of every single adversity is a significant economic rebound. I guess adversity is a bit like a slap in the face to human beings. It gives us a big shake-up yeah. and um, we, we, we dust ourselves off and then we've got that competitive spirit. And, mm. and sometimes it's a slap in the face that we need to – uh, wake up that competitive spirit, and that's that's where we're in now. Hey Simon, thank you. You've been so generous with your time, with your, with your insights as well. I want to say thank you very much on behalf of our listeners, on behalf of our clients, for for sharing your tips and your insights with us, mate. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Simon. My pleasure. Beautiful. That wraps up another episode of the Australian Property Investment Podcast. If you found it helpful, please leave us a review. Um, please hit us up with your comments as well. Simon's details will be in the comments below. So if you want to check out Simon and his team at Propertyology, find out what they're about, subscribe to the newsletter, feel free to as well. The details will be in the comments below. Simon, thank you very much. And until next time, it's Aaron Chris David signing off. Thanks. Thanks.